0: If you don't have a Bible, we want to get one into your hand. So you can raise your hand, and our ushers at the front here, they're going to walk towards the back, and they just love to get a Bible into your hand. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, then let me just um, encourage you to take this home with you. It's our gift for you today. Trust that it would be a blessing to you as you open it and read it. And you can open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 3. We're continuing our Advent series, and uh, I mentioned last week that we were really going to launch out of, for the next... Four weeks now, three weeks. Um, uh, Genesis three fifteen, and we're going to look at this verse through different lenses. Uh, the the Advent lenses last week, hope this week, love. And I want to read it for us again, just to keep it fresh in our minds. Just verse fifteen, and we're going to be looking at a number of other passages this afternoon but this this i hope will be fresh in your mind after adam and eve had fallen into sin here's what god says to the serpent and in here we find this great promise i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel We saw, again, last week that God made this promise, and in this moment, this promise is absolutely necessary, not only to produce hope, but also to continue the life of Adam and Eve. This is the promise in Scripture through which and from which all of the other promises of the Bible will flow. But I want to this afternoon really get behind this promise to get at perhaps a more intriguing question. And that's this why does God give this promise in the first place? What motivates the giving of this promise? Maybe let me make it a little more personal for you, and I I hope you can connect the dots here this afternoon. Why? Are you even here today? Why do you even exist now at this very moment? Why right now are you enabled to take one more breath? Why is your heart allowed to beat one more time this very moment? Why are you allowed to experience life at all? And the answer I hope you see where we're going, is love. Love is the reason. Love is the motivation. Love is behind a grace. Love is behind mercy. Love is behind life for you and for me, but for Adam and Eve in this very moment. This is the most important promise in the Bible. But through this we see That God proves his love for humanity. And though the answer, love, is very simple, I'll grant you that, it's actually maybe a little bit more layered and complex than we first can see. You see, God's love is multifaceted. And so I simply want to look at three aspects of God's love that motivate the promise of the coming Messiah, The love of God that is behind this promise, that is behind Christmas Day, that is behind the cross, and that is even behind one day the future return of Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want to show you three things here. First, the promise proves that God loves his world. It proves that God loves his world. The most natural question to ask in this moment, as we read this passage, but admittedly, it isn't the first question that comes to our mind, is this, why are they still alive? Remember, God had already promised prior to this that if they ate from the the, the tree, that they would surely die. Why doesn't God destroy them and start over? That should be the natural question as we read through this text. And what's fascinating is I think, I think we can kind of, if we put ourselves in the position of God for a moment, listen, it's a dangerous thing, but I want you to imagine that you are the supreme creator of the universe. You have all power, all authority, all control. There's nothing that's too hard for you. You already spoke everything into existence by simply speaking. That's it. It's all you had to do. And boom, there it is. I mean, I just want you to think for a moment, if that was you, what would you do in this moment? I'll tell you what I would do. I would look at the defective product, and I would say, well, forget this. Forget fixing this. Let's just scrap this and start over. Why, why keep the assembly line rolling if we're just going to start pumping out defective product over defective product over defective product? Let's just shut it down, let's start all over again, and by the way, that would be both in this moment, this is what's so interesting about this situation, that would be both right, for he promised it, and it would be fair, for they deserved it. But what God gives them instead is grace, and that's what grace is, it's not getting what we deserve, it's not getting what's fair, it's actually getting what we don't deserve life in this instance. And just look how God handles them in in these desperate and disastrous moments. Grace and mercy shine forth against the backdrop of sin and darkness. And rather than instantly destroying His world in just anger, God preserves His world in loving grace uh, theologian Gerald Bray, he, he says this, he said, God's willingness to preserve the fallen spiritual creatures in spite of their rebellion is matched by his desire to keep the human race in being. And then he says this, this is a mystery that can be explained only by his deep love for his creatures. You, you might Think of it like this, that in this moment, love restrains instantaneous justice. And even in our fallen state, here's what's so helpful for us to understand. God values us as creatures and has done nothing to alter or diminish the inherent value assigned to us as His image bearers. God still looks at us fallen human beings and says, that's, that's one that I've made in my image. It has value and worth and significance, even though it is now marred and broken by sin. And, and again, listen, contrary to what we might do when we have a broken product, when we might just cast it aside, this is such a sweet reminder for us of how different God's thoughts are than our thoughts, how different His ways are than our ways. And I want to encourage you with this. It's also a reminder of how little we actually understand and appreciate God's love for us. Fortunate for us, God is in the business of fixing the broken things he loves, not discarding us for our flaws. Amen? I mean, that's why we're here. And some of you, you need to hear that today because you look at your life and you look at your sin and you feel so unworthy and so undeserving, you feel so worthless. Does the world deserve his love? That's a fair question. Does the world deserve his love? The answer is a resounding no. No, the world doesn't deserve his love, especially after they have fallen and rebelled against him. What's interesting is I think we often miss this. There's a whole book of the Bible that talks about how undeserving the world is of God's love, and it's written by a man named Jonah. It's written about a man named Jonah, and the, the book title has his name. And what's so fascinating about the story of Jonah is that Jonah is is a part of the people of God, right? He has the covenant love of God. He he is under the the grace and kindness of God as the chosen people of God. And yet, here's Jonah. He gets called out by God as a prophet to go to this great city named Nineveh. And all you need to know about Nineveh is that they're, they're at the time, they're probably, arguably, the most wicked city on earth. They're, They're not... They're not part of the chosen people of God. In fact, they're pagans. They worship false gods, and they do horrendous things in their life and in their worship of these false deities, and yet God calls this man Jonah, and he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and you know the story, right? What does Jonah do? He says, you know what? I'm going to run away from God. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to flee. He jumps on a ship. Storm comes. He realizes the storm is there because of him. He convinces the the crew to throw him overboard, realizing that this would calm the sea. The storm's there because of God. I'm rebelling against God. They throw him overboard, right? Jonah gets swallowed by this whale or this great fish, and he's three days. He's spat up on the shore. He learns his lesson, right? You sit three days in the belly of a fish, you're going to go do what God says to do. And that's what he does. He gets back up and he starts marching across this city, Nineveh. And all he's doing is he's declaring their wickedness and the and the just judgment of God that's coming if they don't repent. That's all he does. He just marches across the city. I mean, declares, imagine that was your job. And you know what happens? They repent. They turn back, and they repent. They hear the message. They realize the judgment's coming. They realize they're wicked sinners, and they repent. And at this point in the book, you think, Jonah's going to be thrilled. I mean, job well done. Mission accomplished. But I want you to see what Jonah says. I'll put it on the screen. Jonah 4 verse 2. Here's what he does. He sulks and he's angry, and he says, he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Isn't that insane? God, I knew, I knew you'd save these guys. <laughs> And I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go because I knew who you were. I knew that you would love them enough that you would save them if they repented. And that's exactly what you did, God. And now I'm furious. Why? How can Jonah even pray this prayer to God and still be standing on his feet, not struck by a bolt of lightning? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how quickly we can come to believe that we are somehow more deserving of God's love and grace than others? I wonder if we miss this in our own lives. I, I wonder if if we become, maybe if you're a Christian in here today, you, you just become accustomed to knowing grace, knowing love, knowing God's mercy, knowing God's kindness. You sing the songs, you go to church, you participate in a small group, you read your Bible, and pretty soon you become convinced that maybe maybe I'm a little bit more worthy of God's love than other people. I think we have the... Inherent capacity to minimize our sin and thereby minimize God's grace and mercy and ultimately his love. And when we minimize our sin, here's what I want you to hear we actually minimize God. As Paul notes in Romans, listen, one act of rebellion against God, and that's what this is in Genesis 3, isn't it? One simple act of rebellion. One dismissal of God's clear command. One bite of fruit. I mean, people often ask this question, like, how could God condemn people for simply doing one? All they did was they took one one small bite of fruit. Paul makes note of this. It's not a matter of how big or small The sin is, it was clearly enough to plunge all of humanity and all of creation into ruin. And the point is that all are deserving of God's judgment. Here's what we need to understand. There are no small sins. There are only small gods. Sin's offense is measured ultimately not by some arbitrary human standard where we categorize some sins as worse than others. And and there's a place for that. But in the ultimate sense, in the grand scheme of of redemption and of eternity, all sin is measured first and foremost by the standard of God himself. That's why one small sin was enough to condemn all of humanity into destruction and eternal separation from God. Because it wasn't one small sin, it was one massive God. This is why, by the way, all sin requires an eternal punishment, because it has been committed against an eternally holy and just God. There are no small sins because God is not a small God, which is what makes this promise here so incredible. God sees the sin of humanity and loves them still. Listen, God sees your sin, all of it, and loves you still. It's an incredible promise of Scripture, an incredible truth that we see over and over through the pages of the Word of God. The Scriptures testify that God's grace is ultimately driven by God's love. And this shouldn't surprise us since the Bible says that God is love. We read that in the Advent readings. This means that, listen, this is so good, that neither the quality of your sins, okay, the degree of wickedness, nor the quantity of your sins, the vast amount of times you've rebelled against God, none of that matters. What matters is the depth and degree of God's love, which is infinitely greater than the depth and degree of sin combined. This is how big God is. So big God's grace is. How big God's love is. There's this general call we see that goes out to all the world God is love. You don't have to die in your sins. You can be forgiven and redeemed and reconciled. I, I, I love what Ezekiel says. Twice in the book of Ezekiel, it says essentially the same thing, reminding us of the love of God towards the world. That's, that's currently, listen, dead in their sins, alienated from God, deserving of God's divine just wrath. Listen to what Ezekiel 18, 32 says. It says, for I have no, listen, this is amazing, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. Ezekiel thirty three eleven says essentially the same thing. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? If you're today, and you think that you're too far gone for God, you need to think again, your view of God is too small. Your view of God's grace is too small. And ultimately, listen, your view of God's love is too small. God's love for the world is, in general, is seen in at least three ways here, okay? Um, His lack of immediate destruction, that's love. They're still alive. Secondly, his clear desire that all would repent and turn and live. But I think directly out of Genesis 3.15, we see here his gift of divine direction, divine direction. Someone is coming to save. God has a plan. This didn't catch God off guard. He knew humanity would fall. He knew humanity would need a deliverer, a redeemer, and He knew that only He could bring it about. The promise reveals God's love and that God gives direct revelation about how humanity can and must be saved. I need you to hear this. We say that God loves the world, but here's here's what that doesn't mean. It does not mean, it does not guarantee that all humanity will be saved. It means that God has provided a way of salvation. You see, God's love requires a right response, and we see that, secondly, the promise proves that God loves his family, it's a different kind of love that God expresses towards his family. And, and I think it's, it's, it's actually somewhat relatable. We, we understand this. We understand, you know, you can, have, you can have as a parent maybe, you can have kids in your neighborhood that you can say, well, we love the kids in our neighborhood. But you love your kids, the ones who sit around your table, the ones you tuck in every night to bed, the ones you put a roof over their head and provide food for them, the ones who constantly talk back to you, those ones... You love them in a different way. The ones you're lovingly trying to disciple towards Christ. What's so interesting is that here we see a picture of God's love for His children. Adam is actually referred to as God's son. Both in chapter 5, we're going to see Adam referred to this way as God's son, but also Luke. When Luke the gospel writer, when he gives the genealogy leading to Jesus, he goes all the way back to Adam and refers to Adam as God's son. And remember, we're dealing with two different family lines. We looked at that last week. We have the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, and the offspring of the serpent. But make no mistake about it, what we see here is that there was a family tree begun here with Adam and Eve. Adam is a son of of God, It's the first statement about God's family in the Bible. And this promise, remember, is ultimately, it's about that family line, that offspring that would come through Eve. And it indicates that God is going to create, think about this, a family, and that it will be tied to this promise right here. The promise will be expanded as we move through the book of Genesis. We're going to get to Genesis 12 and 17 where the specifics of the promise are going to be clarified um, in a covenant that God makes with a man named Abram. God's going to promise Abraham a family through his offspring. Again, connecting that word offspring all the way back to the offspring that's promised in Genesis 3.15 right here. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.16, who is a Hebrew scholar, he, he says this in Galatians 3.16, it'll be on the screen. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offspring referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ." What's interesting is that this family idea is developed even further from Abraham. You know, he's promised that he would be the father of many nations, but from him, he's going to give birth to uh, the nation of Israel, fascinating. When you get to Exodus chapter 4, remember in the book of Exodus, Israel's actually in bondage um, in Egypt, and it's, it's fascinating. The language that God uses when he describes Israel, in fact, let me just read it to you. Exodus 4.23. Some of you may want to jot that down and look at this later. It's so interesting. He says this. He's speaking to Pharaoh, and he's using familial terms. Listen to what he says. He says, this is, of Israel. let my son go. Speaking of Israel they God's son. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. Now remember, remember the lines, right? The battle of the serpent seed against the seed of the woman. And here you go, Pharaoh and his family versus God and his family. You ever wonder why God says to Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, remember, he speaks from heaven. He says, This, what did he say? This is my beloved son. It's familial language it's identifying the character of God he he is a loving father and at the same time it's identifying Jesus as the true Israel it's the second Adam his beloved son here's the one that everything has been pointing to here's the one who's come into the world and i love my son God's telling us that he is building a family through this beloved son. In fact, Paul in Galatians 3, a little later after 3.16 in verse 26, he says this, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith you see what he's saying? He's like, through my son, through this, this offspring that I have promised from the very beginning, I am actually going to bring together a people into my family. They will be collectively my son because they will be in my beloved son. God says, I love you so much that one day I'm going to send my son into the world for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in order to save a people and create a family. And I just, I want you to remember how much God loves you today, okay? Remember who you were. Remember who you were. In fact, Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, here's who you were. You want to know who you were? This is who I was too. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is you and this is me. Maybe this is some of you here today following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's familial language, right? You're either of your father the devil or of your father God, Yahweh, king of kings, lord of lords. And here Paul ties these two things together and he says this, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature, listen to this language, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And and I think arguably this this is the best verse in all the Bible. But God, but God being rich in mercy. Why? Listen, what, what undergirds the mercy and grace of God? What is it exactly? Paul does not mince words. Listen to this. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's like, why, why did God choose me? Why did God save me? Uh, listen, the only answer you need to know is this, because God loved you. He loved you. What the Lord Jesus Christ as Advent points us to that the coming of Jesus, an entirely new idea entered history, for he taught not only that God is loving, but also that he loves us with an extraordinary love entirely beyond all human imagination. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 13. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friend. That that love had sent Christ to die for sinners. And Paul says in in Romans 5, 7, and 8, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we read already in the the Advent reading, this love is seen most visibly at the cross. You say, what exactly did God do at the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross in this is love? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. I mean, so you say... How deep is the love of God? How great is the love of God? Well, here's how how great and how expansive and how awesome the love of God is. While we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, while we were sinners, enemies of God, rebelling against him and wanted nothing to do with him, God said, I am going to come rescue you. I will run and find you. I will pull you out of the muck and mire of sin. And what I'm going to do is where you deserve justice, wrath, and punishment for your sin. I'm going to send my beloved son, and I'm going to send him for one mission. And the mission is to rescue you, but the only way he can do it is if he he marches to a cross of wood, and he's nailed there, but by the hands of sinful, wicked men. And on the cross, he's not just going to suffer physically for you. He's going to go far deeper than that. He's going to go much further than that. He's going to actually suffer and pay for your eternal sin. He is going to judge his son in your place so that the wrath of God can be propitiated, so that God's anger can be assuaged, so that God can remain holy and just. He will pour out his wrath that you and I deserve upon his own beloved son, all so that he can love you through his son and call you into his family as his son. Isn't that awesome? The gospel is so profoundly rich, and it manifests the love of God in such incredible ways. I mean, let me just kind of drive this a little bit deeper. What does God's love do? Four things. Listen, God's love calls you. Make no mistake about it. God's love calls to your heart. God's love in his calling work, listen to what he does. He convicts you of your sin. He shows you that you are a sinner, that you've rebelled against him. And he calls you to himself out of hiding from your sin, out of trying to justify and excuse your sin. And he, instead, he puts your sin right in front of your face. And he says, I know all of it. I know all of it and I know, more. I know more than you do. You forget most of your sin. I see it all. I know it all. I never forget it. I see it all. It's all in front of me. And I'm calling you still in my love to myself. He calls you into his family through faith. His love converts us. This is this is awesome. He, he doesn't leave us in this place of guilt and shame. Instead, what he does is he actually he gives us this new birth. We read about that in John three, new life, where he actually takes out our heart of stone, the heart that is dead because of sin, alienated from the presence of God, and desiring nothing but sin and wickedness and unrighteousness. And what he does is he says, "I love you so much. I'm going to rip out that heart of stone, and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. And this heart of flesh is going." To beat with new love and affection for me. You're going to hate sin. You're going to love holiness. You're going to love me above all other things, and you're going to fight for a new life of holiness in my strength and power. Thirdly, his love conforms us. That's that power. That's Romans 12 1 and 2. We're no longer going to be conformed to this world, we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. He's going to make us entirely different people. His spirit is going to completely renovate our lives in love. He's going to change us more and more to look like his beloved son. That's what the love of God does for us. And, and it gets even better than that. His, his love, listen, it cements us. So four C's if you didn't catch that. It cements us, and this is, this is so good. It, it, it seals us, right? When, when he gives you his spirit, he seals you in his spirit. If you are genuinely in Christ today, if you know the love of God in Christ Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if he is your master, your savior, listen, here's what this means. Nothing and no one can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. It's nothing. Nothing. Nothing in this world, nothing in heaven and on earth can ever tear you apart from the eternal, unending love of God. You say, how is that possible? You mean I can't lose myself? Salva- I can't sin you know, and, and lose my salvation? I can't be so bad that I just lose my salvation? No, listen, you did nothing to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can ever do to lose it. It was given to you by God's grace, undergirded by God's love. Now listen, it's not freedom to live however you want. I hope you know that. In fact, the Bible says if if you don't live with a pattern of godliness, yes, we have interruptions, yes, sanctification, the spiritual growth process can be a a bumpy road, but but it is a, a road that has a path and a trajectory. And if you never display any evidence of faith, then it's possible you're not actually saved and you don't know the love of God. You say, well, what do I do if that's the place that I'm in? It's a really simple answer. If that's the place you're like, Ma, I, I'm not sure, I've really... Here's the answer. Repent right now. <laughs> Turn and live right now. Don't delay. You're not too far gone. You say, how do you know I'm not too far gone? Because you're alive. You're here. And if you have life and breath then hear what the Scriptures say, then today, let today be the day of salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. God loves you enough, listen, to even have you here today if you don't know Christ. He loves you enough to have you here in this very moment for this very reason. Because He wants you to know He loves you so much He sent His his beloved Son to die for you. There's nothing you could do to earn it, nothing you could do to deserve it, like, well, I feel so unworthy, good, good, then you're like the rest of humanity who is unworthy, listen, but by the grace of God, we are still not worthless. God says, I will pay the price for you. I will bring you into my family. And in God's family, you can continue to know and experience that familial, fatherly love. But maybe maybe we need to ask an even deeper question than this. Why does God love his world and why does God love his children? Why? And when we get right down to the core of it, I think the promise proves finally that God loves his glory. God loves his glory. Maybe I can say it like this and hear me just, because God loves God. God loves God. You're like, well, that, that seems a little bit confusing. That even sounds really selfish. Isn't that, isn't that selfish for God to love God? Ian, are, are you maybe pushing this a little bit too far? Well, listen, I agree that if we're talking about human beings, then for sure that's a real problem. If I sat up here and told you the best thing for you was if you loved me, I think we can all agree you should leave this church. But that's because I'm a flawed, sinful human being just like you. i got sin, I've got problems, I've got struggles, and I'm in need of the grace of God just as much as you are. But when we're talking about God, we're we're talking about a a being that, that is so vastly different than anything our minds can fully comprehend. It's so far he so far exceeds and transcends our wildest imaginations our finite minds do not have the capacity to fully comprehend all the depths and riches and wonders of god do you ever wonder why the new heavens and the new earth is going to be an eternal reality Because part of an eternal reality is going to be forever experiencing something new about an eternal God, and it's going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever because you will never be able to exhaust the depths, riches, and wonders of God. And so, if that kind of a being who created all things, including you, stands before you and says to you, listen, I know who I am, and I am so much greater than anything you could possibly imagine, and if you simply knew me, everything in your life would be complete. Everything in your life would find meaning. Every..." satisfaction that you have been longing for can be found. If that's true, and the Bible says it is, then what God offers to you in himself is absolutely, without question, what is best for you. And what's really interesting, you can turn in your Bible to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, we, we, uh, we're exposed to this really unique prayer slash conversation, which prayer is really, in essence, conversation with God. But Jesus here, he, he speaks to God the Father. This is before he's going to the cross, and he's, he prays for his disciples, he prays for the world, he prays for you and me, believe it or not, in this, this passage. But, but here we're exposed to God in such a unique way. And what we're reminded of as we read this is that God's love is fundamentally different than a fallen human being's love. So when I say, you know, God loves his glory or God loves God, it's helpful to understand that God, God is fundamentally different. He is holy. He is utterly set on himself in his own glory. Isaiah chapter six says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Jesus, as he's praying, remember, it's interesting because we forget this, that Jesus is a part of the Trinity. He's God, right? That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. Here is God in flesh. But here in his humanity, he speaks to the Father, and I just want to show you a couple of verses. John 17, 5 and 24, it says, now, Father, he says, listen to this, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Just pause for a moment. Just look. He's, he's reaching back into eternity past. Before any of us or any of this ever existed. And what we see is that Jesus enjoyed a glory. And he goes on in verse 24... Look down there with me. He says, Father, listen, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see, look, why? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, this is fascinating. Fascinating. God's glory is the essence of all that he is. Remember, we've talked a lot about what was lost in the fall, and that was the presence of God. That was being exposed to the intimate depths of the the presence of God. And from this point on, anybody who's exposed to even a glimpse or glimmer of God's glory is laid flat out. They they can't fully gaze upon it. They, They cannot get too close to the presence of God without being fully destroyed in their sinfulness. But here what we see is that Jesus has this desire to bring humanity back into the fullness of God's glory. And Jesus' words remind us that God is not like us. He is a a triune God, a one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that He is eternal, that He is relational, and that He is love. And when you put those three things together, you have a picture of a God who has existed forever in perfect relationship of love. Sometimes people are like, why did God create us? Maybe God created us because there was something missing in his life. God had this hole in his heart that could only be filled by humans. God didn't create us because he needed us. God created us because he desired to share himself with us. He, He desired to share all that he is and all of his beauty and all of his holiness and all of his glory and all of his love with us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But what exactly is eternal life? Look back to verse three in John 17. You see, what is eternal life? This is, he says, and this is eternal life. Here's the definition, okay, church? Listen to this, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. It's knowing the fullness of His love. God's love, here's why I'm saying this because God's love is God centered. Everything God does ultimately is for God in His glory. And Genesis 3.15 reminds us that God wants to give himself to humanity so that might know him and share in his love. And we see glimpses of this throughout the ministry of Jesus, right? The incarnation of Jesus was God manifesting his love in order to share his love in the most profound way to rescue and redeem hopeless lost sinners. We see glimpses of the Trinitarian love and the plan and purpose of redemption. The Father beholds the Son and He loves the Son because He wants the Son's glory in all things. He loves His love for the Son is premised on the Son's perfection, beauty, and righteousness. He says, this is my beloved Son. The Son, meanwhile, looks... But the Father, and He says, I will speak nothing except what you tell me to say. I will do nothing except what you tell me to do. I don't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth, O Father. You deserve all praise and glory. And when I ascend to my throne, I'm going to give all glory to you and put all nations under your feet. All of the blessings believers will one day experience in heaven flow from the reality that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. From all eternity, the Father and Son enjoyed perfect fellowship, love, and shared glory. And from this inter-Trinitarian love, the Father chose a people. He gave them to the Son. John 17, 24 through 26, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me This loving God has brought you into His family, and He has prepared an eternal kingdom for you and for all those who have embraced His love in Jesus Christ. The Bible is often broken up into four categories, creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. So the broad buckets. Viewed through the lens of love, let me just suggest this to you. Creation is the desire for God to share His love. The fall is humanity's rejection of God's love. Redemption is the greatest expression of God's love. The promise that begins here says to fallen humanity, I still love you. The incarnation that we're looking forward to says to humanity, love has come now for you. The cross declares love has now rescued you. And then God gives to us His Spirit, which is His love in you. Romans 5 5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And then you can think of recreation, the new heavens, and the new earth like this. Come and experience the fullness of my love forever and ever. Okay, so how should we respond to God's love? I want to end with three things. How should we respond to God's love? Well, first, love God's glory. God's love is to be a model for us. And if God's love is God-centered, our love should also be God-centered. And, and here's what this needs to look like in your life and in mine. I, I want God more than I want anything else in this world. I want to know the love of God. I want to see his glory. And that comes first oh, listen, only by looking to Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You need to first, if you haven't yet, listen, the first thing needs to be, you need to look to the glory of Jesus Christ. You need to look to Jesus. You need to see that he is king of kings and lord of lords. You need to look at the cross and see what he did for you. And you need to bow down before this king now, before it's too late. And you need to repent and embrace the love of God in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ today, there needs to be an increased longing for God's glory. Okay? Above all things, you need to long for his glory. You need to pray, God, show me your glory. You need to beg God to make God's glory, to God's love, the center of your affections and desires. You need to allow the love of God to to help you crucify your sins and pursue a life of righteousness and holiness. You need to be living for Christ and for his glory. Whether you eat or drink, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do all things for the glory of God. You need to love God's glory. Listen, everything flows from this in the Christian life. Everything flows from this in the Christian life. And if you get God first and God best, you'll love everything else in its proper place. So, secondly, love God's family. If you're, if you're a part of God's family, one of the evidences that you truly love God is seen in how you love God's family. This is 1 John. We, we read it in the Advent piece there. But the whole book of 1 John is filled with this kind of language. A love for the brothers. Love for God's family. And love. You say, what does this look like exactly? Well, listen, love is fundamentally the affection for another's good. Okay, So in other words, love says, I want your good. I I want what's best for you. I want you, therefore, as a Christian, to know Christ. I want you to be obsessed with his glory. I want you to be transformed into his likeness. I want you living faithfully for him. I want sin to be crucified in your life. I want you walking in step with the Spirit. I want you actively engaged in what God loves, which is his bride, the church of Jesus Christ. I want you using your gifts the way God has has designed you to be used in the family of God. I want you to be blessed by the gifts of other people in the family of God in your life. I want you to fight for what God loves. I want you to comfort those who desperately need it. I want you to show loving hospitality to those who need it. I want you to love the unlovely, those who are hurting and needy. You see, it looks really like Christ. It looks like Selfless, sacrificial service for the glory of God the Father. Where does love for our Christian brothers and sisters lead us to? Here's where it leads, church. This is so good. It leads to unity. It leads to maturity. Paul says in Ephesians 4, we build one another up in love. Lastly, love God's world. See so what, what does love for the world lead to? Here's, this is one word. Mission. Mission we have a message to take to the world, church. And this is how how love is going to be expressed through the church. Yes, through acts of service and kindness, but fundamentally through a message proclaimed, be reconciled to God. God loves you so much that he sent his only son into the world. And if you would believe in him, you can have eternal life. You can know God. You can have your sins paid for you can be given the very righteousness of Christ. God's love, let me say it again, is God-centered. When we as as human beings then love in a God-centered way, we burn to see his character and glory expressed everywhere, in our lives, in our friends, in our families, in our enemies, in creation, in everything. And we want the world to see our good deeds, both lived out and from our lips, so that at the end of the day, when He returns, they too can give glory to our God and Father who is in heaven. We want to proclaim Christ the King of glory. God is the good that God lovingly wants for others, and He is the good that we should lovingly want for others. How should we respond to God's love? With love. (laughs) We build our lives upon His love so that it is cultivated in us and flows from us. Let's pray.